Please turn with me to Acts chapter 2. We'll be reading from verse 1 to verse 13. When the day of Pentecost came, they were all together in one place. Suddenly a sound like the blowing of a violent wind came from heaven and filled the whole house where they were sitting. They saw what seemed to be tongues of fire that separated and came to rest on each of them. All of them were filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit enabled them. Now, they were staying in Jerusalem, God-fearing Jews from every nation under heaven. When they heard the sound, a crowd came together in bewilderment because each one heard their own language being spoken. Utterly amazed, they asked, aren't all these who are speaking Galileans? Then how is it that each of us hears them in our own native language? Perithians, Medes, and Elamites, residents of Mesopotamia, Judea and Cappadocia, Pontus and Asia, Phrygia and Pamphylia, Egypt and the parts of Libya near Cyrene, visitors from Rome, both Jews and converts to Judaism, Cretans and Arabs. We hear them declaring the wonders of God in our own tongues. Amazed and perplexed, they asked one another, what does this mean? Some, however, make fun of them, saying, they have had too much wine. This is the word of the Lord. Good morning, church, and it's uh, great to be with you uh, uh, on Pentecost Sunday. Uh, We don't uh, often sort of focus in on that, but I thought, uh, especially since we're in between series anyway, that this was a good opportunity to do so. Well, in uh, 1947, a discovery was made that would change the world. John Bardeen and Walter Bretain managed to develop the first ever working transistor. It's uh, on your left there, that sort of plasticky, weird-looking thing. That's, that, that apparently is what their first transistor looked like. Uh, the, the other one is sort of a more modern transistor. Now, their transistor they used to amplify a signal. So they used it in amplifiers to make sounds louder, so in radios and so on. That's what they thought it would be used for. But now, just about every piece of electronic equipment you have will have a, multiple, probably, transistors in it, whether it is your microwave or your fridge or even probably your toaster probably has some transistors in it. But the thing that transistors are most used in and probably most transform our world are microchips or computer chips, if you like. For in them, there are thousands, no, billions of micro uh, transistors, uh, less than uh, 22 billionth of a metre apart. So on the tiny little chip, there is billions upon billions of uh, transistors that make the microchips, the, the computer chips in your phone and your computer work. And so this humble little piece of technology now powers much of our world. 
Can you imagine a world without computers? Well, I know some of you can because you're old enough to remember a time when there were no computers. In fact, when I was born, computers weren't really a thing. In fact, the internet didn't exist. Shock, horror. Um, but now computers do so much for us. They're everywhere. We wouldn't be able to do what we're doing right now. The people watching at home would be looking at a blank piece of glass, strangely, uh, if it wasn't for computers. This invention transformed our world. And yet as much as the microchip, oh sorry, the, the transistor, changed our world all the way back in 1947, this event, Pentecost, 2,000 plus years ago, that's recorded here from us in Acts 2, changes the world far, far more. 120 people gathered in a room, praying and praising God, and something happens. God did something. And it's not just spectacular for the kind of miraculous things that are there, the, the, the fire and the, the wind and the, the speaking in all kinds of languages. I mean, that's really cool, but that's actually not the most amazing thing in a way that's happening that day. They represent what's happening. But what did happen? Why can I make the claim that this is one of the most momentous events, most momentous days in the history of the world? It's right up there, really, with... Uh, 50 days beforehand, so that's when Pentecost happens, 50 days after the death and the resurrection of Christ. It's right up there with that. And that's higher, but this is right up there. How can I say that? Why is this so, so significant? And really, it's in the symbolism of the day that we discover its meaning. So, I'm going to ask three questions, really. Why Pentecost? Why Pentecost Sunday? Or why Pentecost Day, the celebration of Pentecost, did this happen? Uh, why wind and why fire? They're kind of the three. What, what does all that mean? Why, why, is it, why did God do it that way? So why Pentecost, why wind, and why fire? Well, what is Pentecost? Pentecost was a pre-existing uh, festival in the Jewish calendar. It was one given to them by God. It was given to them by God as the Israelites came out of Egypt and into the promised land, a land flowing with milk and honey, a land that they did not plant the, the vineyards, they did not build the houses, they did not build the city, cities, and God gave all of that to them. And now they were going to reap the benefits of this great gift from God. And when they harvested the first part of the harvest was to be taken to God in celebration at Pentecost. So it was a celebration of the first fruits, the first bit of the harvest. Uh, why is... So how, how, how is that relevant? Well, this isn't a harvest of fruit and vegetables, grapes or anything. This is the first day of the harvest, the first fruits, the first little bit of the harvest of all the people that God would gather to himself in his son, Jesus. This is the beginning. This is the first bit, the bit to celebrate because God is going to give way, way more. Now, you, you understand that, I know, because uh, 
here we are sitting 2,000 years later and we're a long way from Jerusalem and we're a long way from this small room of people and we know how the church has expanded. But understand that for the people there in that room, this was an extraordinary event. For not only would it be lots of Jews that converted, but actually people all over the globe. Now, we can sometimes maybe look down on the Jews for not realising that God intended to save people from every nation. But think about it. Imagine if your ancestor, God came to them and said, I'm going to work in the world through you. That's Abraham. And then to his son, and then to his son, and then to the nation and then he rescued that nation out of Egypt and then he sent and brought them to Sinai and gave them covenants and and so on at Sinai and then he he sent prophets and then he rescued you and he kept talking to you and kept working with you and kept like to your ethnic group to your family like it's always been about your family God has always worked with your family and then all of a sudden God says actually now I'm going to go to everyone that would be pretty hard to get your head around I think but that's what's happening here and, and you get that in seed form. You get that in seed form here uh, with this list of place names. Did you notice there uh, in, in verse 9 to 11, there's suddenly Luke inserts all of these places that people are from. Now, that's not because biblical authors, when they're writing stuff down, they go, you know what, I... We haven't had a list of geographical locations for a while. I'd like to insert some that are ones that are really hard to pronounce. Let's let's stick some of those in, and uh, just to keep people. Re- that's not that's not why that's that's there. I mean, Luke really slows down what is an incredible story of what's happening here to like list 15 places, geographical locations on the on the globe. Why does he do that? Well, because. All of, there's people from all of those places. Now, they're all Jews at this point, or converts to Judaism, as I think it says in verse, uh, verse 11 there. But there, uh, many of those are about to be converted. 3,000 probably men, so, plus others, are going to be converted at the end of Peter's sermon in the rest of uh, the chapter 2. And th- what are they going to do after that? They're going to go back home. They're going to go back home with this gospel message of Jesus Christ uh, and they're going to tell the people around, they're going to gossip the gospel, as it were. That's sort of how it's spoken of later in Acts. They're whisper the gospel, talk the gospel to, to the people they meet. And so the harvest begins, you see, this grand harvest. 120 people in a room. It very quickly goes to 3,000 and it's going to go even more. And it, and it goes, of course, beyond just Jews and converts to Jews. Within a very short space of time, the church in Jerusalem is persecuted. It's, it's thrown out into the world and they tell the people in Samaria and then they tell the people in Antioch. And so the gospel goes to the nations. So that by the time you get to Paul's writing Colossians, some maybe 20 or 30 years later, he can say, here there is no Greek or Jew, circumcised or uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave or free, but Christ is all and is in all. God here begins this amazing work that he, that is carrying on to this day of gathering in people from every tribe and nation and tongue by His Spirit uh, into Christ, united by the Spirit in Christ. That's what started this day. 
this incredible mission to the world. Uh, recently, uh, I was watching some footage from uh, GAFCON, because I'm an exciting person, so I like to... So GAFCON is the, the Global Anglican Fellowship Conference. Yeah, isn't that exciting? I can send you the link if you're interested. Um, now, sadly, the reason I was watching that is because actually um, Anglicans from all over the world had got together and they were actually kind of rejecting the Church of England because the Church of England has rejected the Bible, essentially. Uh, but now, where was GAFCON held this year? It was held in Kigali. Where's Kigali? Does anyone know where Kigali is? It's Africa, more specifically. Rwanda. Rwanda, of all places. A, a land of trouble some years ago. Now, as I watched the speakers there, um, you know, obviously there was people from Australia and Afri America and even England, but many of the speakers, many of the speakers who are defending the gospel of Jesus Christ as we've received it through his word and, and, and talking about the proclamation of the gospel to the nations and so on and so forth, were, were Africans. They were from Rwanda and Nigeria and, and all sorts of places around there. Now, of course, I knew that the church existed there, but to see them with my own eyes, they're proclaiming the gospel of Jesus Christ. Isn't that magnificent? Isn't it magnificent to see the way the gospel has reached into other cultures? It's the same as when, say, Israel comes here, isn't it? When he comes and he, he has so much passion and he's, he's preaching the gospel and you think, well, there's another outpost of the gospel in Myanmar. But it's not just there, it's in China and it's in Iran and it's in uh, South America and all over the world the gospel is bearing fruit. In India, though there is persecution at this time, the gospel is bearing fruit. And friends, that all began on this day as God poured out His Spirit on His church. This was just the first fruits. The huge harvest is still being brought in. Well, then, that, that's why it was Pentecost. It pointed to something far bigger to come. But why wind? Why is it that suddenly a sound like a blowing of, of a violent wind, uh, verse 2, uh, is part of this account. What's, what's the deal with wind? Well, to, again, to understand, we have to go back into the Old Testament, and there's lots of places we could go, but uh, here's two important verses right from near the beginning of the Bible. Now, the earth was formless and vo empty, darkness was over the surface of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the waters. Now, if you're an observant person, you will notice that the word wind does not appear in that verse. Well, just wait a minute. Just wait a minute. Uh, then Genesis 2, verse 7, The Lord God formed the man out of the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and the man became a living being. Now, we've got breath there, so it's a bit closer. Well, what you need to understand uh, in these verses and, and actually in other places is that in Greek and in Hebrew... Uh, the word for breath, the word for wind, and the word for spirit are actually all the same word. And so, uh, there's often in the Bible plays on that word. 
Uh, so the Spirit of, the, of God, so the wind of God, the, the breath of God was hovering over the waters. And the breath of life, the, the Spirit of life, you see. And so uh, there's, there's this idea of wind and spirit, and it's picked up in a really important passage, uh, Ezekiel 37. And I know all of you are now thinking, oh yes, Ezekiel 37, I remember that. That's very significant, thank you. Well, we don't need to read it then, let's just move on. No, Ezekiel 37 uh, is, is a vision that God gives to Ezekiel where he sees, if you recall, a valley and it is full of dry bones, dry and dead bones. You can imagine like, uh, in that desert kind of landscape that there, how, how dead and dry those bones are. And, and they're human bones. And God says to Ezekiel, prophesy to the bones and he does, and, and sinew and muscle and, and then skin forms over these bones and you have now a whole lot of bodies. But they're still dead bodies, still useless in that sense. They're just going to decay again. And so then God says, prophesy to the breath. Prophesy, son of man, and say to it, this is what the Sovereign Lord says, Come from the four winds, O breath, and breathe into these slain that they may live. So I prophesied as he commanded me, and breath entered them. They came to life and stood up on their feet, a vast army. You see, there it is, the breath, the wind of God, picked up again by Jesus when he's talking to Nicodemus, and he says, You must be born again. And Nicodemus is very confused, but Jesus there then starts talking about the wind. And you can't see where the wind, but the wind blows where it will. And he's talking about the breath, the, the wind, the Spirit. The Spirit of God is the life-giving force. He's, he's a person, but he, he's the one who comes and he gives life. The spirit of life, the spirit of bringing life, the wind or the breath of life, it's all the same thing. And so the reason we have the, the wind here, this great wind, a great wind coming on this room of people is because now God is transforming and bringing life. The spirit that brings life, the spirit that gives life is giving life to these people and it's spiritual life because spiritually, friends, without God, we are dead. We are like that valley of dry bones because we have rebelled against Him. We've hated Him. We've sinned against Him. We don't want Him. And we need the Spirit to come and give us life, to, to rebirth us, as Jesus says. And so if you're, you're here this morning and you have any interest in God whatsoever, you love God, you want to serve God, you, you, you want to grow in God, even imperfectly, you want to serve God, that is not from you. For without the Spirit, you are dead bones to God. That's how much you can do for Him on your own, dead bones. But when the Spirit comes... He makes us alive in Christ. The old is gone, the new has come. We are a new creation by the Spirit. It's something that happens and then continues to happen as the Spirit transforms us ever more into the likeness of Christ. 
That is why one of the first things you hear after this day, at the end of chapter 2, as we have these 3,000 believers, the first church, if you will, one of the things we read is the transformation in their lives. They devote themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship. This is at the end of chapter 2. They, they, they share their possessions together. They meet with each other in the home. They, they witness to people. This... This is a transformed community by the Spirit. That's what he has come to do. You might say, well, hang on a minute. I, I, I don't know that I see that all that much. Great transformation by the Spirit into the likeness of Christ. Is that, is that happening? Well, it happens slowly. But I think... I suspect, at least, in our church kind of tradition, the one that we have here, the way we tend to do things, one of the things we don't do enough of is pray for the transformation of the Spirit. To pray for this transforming work to be done in us. And I want to read to you a prayer, an example of that kind of prayer, from a man named Peter Adam. Uh, Peter Adam has... He's, he's older, he's quite old, I don't know how old he would be. So I'm, I, There's no way to finish that without insulting someone, so I'm just going to stop. Um, he's, a, he's a wonderful man. Uh, he, he has set prayers that he prays, and he has for every day of the week, and he prays them every day, um, each, each day a different set of prayers. And in each sets, set of prayers, he uh, has one which, ref, which uh, focuses on this transforming work of the Spirit. And so I've just taken one from one of the days of the week. Uh, and this is what he prays. Heavenly Father, you have made me in your image and you are transforming me into the image of your Son by the power of your Spirit from one degree of glory to another. Help me to trust you in times of weakness and frailty. Help me to repent and pray each day and not fail through moral lapse. Renew my inner nature day by day by your Spirit. Help me to pour out my heart to you when I am distressed, stressed, disappointed, hurt or depressed, and to find your compassion and comfort in times of trouble. Give me self-discipline in eating, drinking, sleeping, reading, working and exercise. Please help me to grow in patience, wisdom, humility, grace, love, trust, and openness. Please rid me of jealousy, competition, bad temper, self-pity, and constant regrets. Guard my tongue and keep me from slander, lies, untruth, unbalanced or unpastoral truth, and from causing unintentional hurt. Now, that's just an example, and I, and I could have pulled out all, a number of different ones. But you see what he is doing here, what he's decided to do at least once a week, every week. <laughs> this prayer, he wants to drill down and he wants to say, Father, help me to change in the ways you've said you want me to change. Like all of this stuff you can find, he's taken it straight out of the New Testament. 
and he wants to change and if we want to see change in our life we need to be praying these sorts of prayers now someone has asked me uh, to send out his prayers uh, I will I was there he's published them online so I feel free to do that uh, I will send them to you if you're interested because they're wonderful prayers to be praying each day but this is what it looks like to grow and to change and to walk in step with the Spirit, as Paul says in Galatians 5, is to be asking God to be at work in our lives to transform us through the work of the Spirit. Well, that's why with the wind, Jesus, God, through His Spirit, is transforming a people into His own likeness. But why the fire? Why... The tongues of fire come and hover over their heads. Well, if you look back in the Old Testament, fire is a symbol for the presence of God. Uh, you can see that in the Exodus stories as they're coming out of the, coming out of the land of Egypt, heading to Mount Sinai. Uh, God leads them with a pillar of fire, in the night at least. Uh, when God makes a covenant with Abraham, uh, fire passes to, through two halves of the animals that he kills and that is that represents God. And then when you get to Mount Sinai, God's presence comes down on the mountain and what, one of the things that you see there is a great fire. Now, fire is scary. And the presence of God in most of those occasions, but especially at Mount Sinai, is a fearful thing. It's a fearful fire. They say that on Black Saturday, one of those, there's, there's multiples of these now, isn't there? The, the, one of those days when Australia burns badly, the noise was tremendous, the heat is overwhelming, the smoke is suffocating. It's, it's a fearful thing to be near an intense and roaring fire. And so it was with God at Mount Sinai and the people begged for him not to speak to them because they, they couldn't stand it. But here, that's not what happens, is it? Here, the fire comes, and, and interestingly, rather than just a fire that's kind of in the centre of the room, representing the presence of God, now the fire comes and it separates out, and it's on the heads of each of them. But it's not a fearful fire. Well, what would you expect if someone said to you, oh, by the way, did you realise that there was a flame just above your head? What would you do? You'd, you would, because what's the next thing that's going to happen if there's a fire above your head? Well, your hair's going to catch on fire and then your head's going to catch on fire and that's, you know, that's something to be avoided. But this fire doesn't burn. This fire doesn't hurt them. Why? Well, because the reason fire is dangerous in the Old Testament, the reason why the presence of God in the Old Testament is dangerous is because we're sinful people. And God cannot abide sin in his presence. And so if we've got sin and we come into his presence, as J.K. said, you could not go into the Holy of Holies except the high priest and once a year and that after sacrifices. You can't do it because we're sinful people and so the fire of God destroys us. But someone came and took the fire, didn't they? 
Jesus, as he hung on the cross, he took the fire of the wrath of God against our sin. He takes the burning, dangerous fire for us, just as had been promised all through the Old Testament, that one would come, as we've been seeing through Abraham, that would come and bring blessing to the world. A king in the line of David would come and bring blessing to the world. And that was Jesus, and he came, and he died in our place and took the fire for us, so that when he baptizes his people with the Holy Spirit and with fire, as John said he would do, it's no longer a fire that destroys us or harms us. It's not the dangerous heat of fire anymore, but the warmth and the joy of the Father's presence. Fire was on them and it did not harm them. They merely enjoyed the presence of God because now they are clean. When God looks at us, he sees the righteousness of Christ. And so now he can dwell with us. This has been his plan from the beginning, that he would dwell with his people. And the Spirit is a deposit. It's not the full thing. You do not have the full presence of God with you yet. It is a deposit guaranteeing what is to come. When Christ, we will dwell with Christ face to face. And again, you might say, well, I don't know that I experienced much of the presence of God. Well, uh, thank you, Case, for reminding us that if we're too busy and we don't engage with God, we ought not expect that we will feel deeply the presence and the warmth of God. If we do not read the Spirit's Word, we ought not expect to hear much of God's voice to us because this is where He speaks. This is the truth that transforms and reminds us. This is where we will experience God most fully. This side of heaven, of course. Now, that's all wonderful, isn't it? I mean, what an amazing thing. The, this is Pentecost, where, where God begins to dwell individually by His Spirit uh, with His people. He, his Spirit calms and transforms our hearts and <coughs> makes us new from the inside out. It's amazing personal spiritual blessing here in this chapter that God would dwell with us and transform us. It's wonderful. But I want you to see that this is actually, this day is not just about personal spiritual experience. As much as that is here and as much as that is a reality, the reason the Spirit came was not first of all to give us this personal spiritual experience of God. If you go back just one chapter, Acts chapter 1, there Jesus tells his disciples why the Spirit is coming. On one occasion, while he was eating with them, he, that is Jesus, gave them this command, do not leave Jerusalem, but wait for the gift my father promised, which you have heard me speak about. For John baptized, cleansed you with water, but in a few days you will be baptized, changed, cleansed, renewed with the Holy Spirit. And then in verse 8, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in Judea and Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. How does God gather his harvest? He gathers his harvest by sending his spirit into his people 
transforming them and empowering them to be harvesters of people. The Spirit comes not first of all for our own personal spiritual happiness, <laughs> though He gives us that. He comes that we might be witnesses to the ends of the earth. He transforms us so that our lives proclaim the gospel even as we speak the gospel with the words that the Spirit gives us. He dwells with us for our own comfort and joy, but also so that we have power to go out into a world which is sometimes hostile and anti-gospel as it is now in India, in places. You see, the Spirit came to carry out this fantastic and amazing mission of God to bring in people from every tribe and nation and tongue, to bring in the full harvest of which this is only the first fruits. That is why he came. That is why he sent his spirit to his church. It's not just for us. It's for his mission. Pentecost is a mission day. And we have the great privilege. We have the great privilege of being Jesus' ambassadors and witnesses in this world to carry the gospel message to the world that the harvest would continue. Whether it's your friend or your work colleague or your neighbour or someone in a distant country, God is calling us to be his witnesses by the power of the Spirit to the glory of his Son. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we thank you that over 2,000 years ago, you sent your spirit into this world, into your church, into your people to gather them to yourself, to transform them into the likeness of your Son so that we might be witnesses in this world to the good news of Jesus Christ. So that we, feeble though we are, broken though we are, might be able to play a part in your great harvest as you bring many, many people into your kingdom to the glory of your Son by the power of your Spirit. Father, help us not to neglect the things that you have given us. Prayer, reading your word, gathering together. Help us not to neglect those things so that we might grow in our relationship with you and indeed experience the wonder of your presence with us. But Lord, having experienced those things, help us not to keep it to ourselves, but to delight in being harvesters in your field, to bring in many for their, for their joy and for the glory of your Son. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.